This is Passing Through Life, a show that explores how people navigate major life changes. Just how do we make it through what life throws at us? I'm your host, Luann Bolbecker. Today's episode is entitled Great Expectations. Whose are they anyway? This is episode number two, and it's an interview with Michael Bion, Executive Director of Asia Inc., or more fully, Asian Services in Action. It's a community service organization based in Cleveland, Ohio, that empowers, advocates for, and serves Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Michael also holds the distinguished honor of serving on a presidential advisory commission working with this population. Very impressive. Oh, thank thank you. (laughs) So welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me today. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thanks, Michael. I'm personally excited that you're able to spend time with us. We met about 10 years ago. Can you believe it? It's been a while. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Time flies. Time flies, and so much has happened. And, you know, this is just one additional thing that we will remember down the road. You're right. Mm-hmm. You're right. Uh, we were both working pretty closely with immigrants and refugees. And both um, your organization and the one I was working with had partnered pretty closely. And eventually, that partnership grew into. Uh, an amazing collaboration of more than a dozen organizations. Oh, yeah. I think that's that's an achievement oh, absolutely. in itself. Yep, yep. Um, and we helped create that. Mm-hmm. So that's how we know each other. I'll always be proud of it. And that's how I really got to see you in action. Oh. Well, just a little, uh, you know, you know, kudos to you as far as all the great work that you've done. Uh, you know, as part of our relationship, you helped us with putting together that wonderful photo exhibit, uh, Faces of Asia Town. And, you know, to this day, I still get very positive comments from the community. They ask about it and how wonderful it was and how they were able to go down memory lane, mm-hmm. especially those Chinese Americans who have generation of families that have grown up in and around downtown area over at Rockwell. So. Um, thank you for your help on that. It was a very important gift to the community. That one I think we will always treasure. So thanks for it. Thank you. I'll yeah. have to put some kind of links uh, so that people, if they want to know more about it, yeah. they can find out about it. Thank you. Um, your work life has been shaped heavily by understanding and living within a specific culture. You know, here we were just talking about the first Chinese settlers mm-hmm. in Cleveland. Um, you're Asian American, and that's really where our conversation is going to start today, too. So tell me a bit about being a Korean in America, and how does that inform who you are and what's expected of you? You know, my story is really not very different from many immigrants that have come here. My family came here in the 70s, in the mid-70s. It was just my mother, my father, and myself. I was just a baby. We came as part of this large wave of Koreans who were immigrating to the United States. Many of them were sponsored through family immigration policies that were in place that allowed for, you know, sisters to 
um, sponsors, families, or mm. other relatives to come to the U.S. My aunts, both my younger aunt and my older aunt, my mother is in the middle, both married American GIs, and they had come to the United States prior to our arrival, and they settled down and felt that it was really important for the entire family to reconnect. And this is, you know, if you look at the history, there was the Korean War, which devastated the country, and it was in a process of rebuilding. And Korea is also a very important strategic position for the United States as far as defense is concerned. So there is that that established relationship over history, and and that was an important reason why the United States had made this opportunity available for Koreans to immigrate to the U.S., whether to start businesses, go to college, reunite with families. So in general, um, were Koreans welcomed? So okay, the government reaches out. I'm curious whether, how did your parents feel? What, yeah. what was that like? You know, when you, when, with that question, I think the thing that comes to me very fondly in my memories um, when I was one, but also the story we told to me by my mother was the fact that, you know, my parents aren't your typical Korean immigrants. They were not educated. My mother barely finished high school. Mm. My father had a couple years of technical college under his belt. And when they arrived to the U.S. in 75, we first and foremost, of all places, immigrated through Honolulu, Hawaii. <laughs> and you think that was fabulous, but... You know, <laughs> Welcome was, to America! Yeah, I'm sure my parents okay. enjoyed it. They were old enough to <laughs> know as an adult that it was beautiful and, and you know, wonderful environment. But for someone like me who was just a baby, I didn't know any much okay. or d- didn't get the opportunity to enjoy it. But in any case, immediately following our immigration to the U.S. through Honolulu, Hawaii, my father enlisted in the U.S. military. Mm. And mm. this is really unusual, but something that was available at that time, which allowed for individuals who were Korean nationalists to come to the U.S. Um, and there was a demand, a high demand for those who had Korean background and Korean language background to support the military's op- op- um, operation in, the Uni- in, okay. in, in South Korea and in the Pacific Islands. And it's through that process that my father enlisted in the U.S. military. It also afforded him the opportunity to be fast-tracked for citizenship. Okay. Um, but that citizenship opportunity does not extend to the to his, his family. So my mother and I had to go on our own separate path towards citizenship. Okay. But, um, you know, upon finishing up his boot camp um, and then being... Um, assigned. We traveled for the first five years of my life. We traveled back and forth from the U.S. and um, Korea, where it depended on my father's assignment at the time. But we would go back and forth um, as his assignments change back and forth from Korea to the U.S. Where were you based? So in the United States, we were based in Killeen, Texas. And that was where towards the end of his ter- time at, in the in the military, and he was in the Army, uh, my f- brother was born in the okay. 4th of July. Oh, what in a Killeen, perfect citizenship yeah, in there. Killeen, Texas. Yeah, okay. And, uh, you know, the assignments in Korea varied depending on what he was doing. But, you know, at some points he was stationed very close to D- to the DMZ. Other times he was st- stationed closely in Seoul um, on, on base with the U.S. Army. Okay. All right. So we digress, but I actually yep. think it's important and I didn't know all that. 
So how does being now a Korean in America, and my understanding is your family's now in Seattle. So where did you grow up? Is that? uh, So I I wanted to give a little bit of the background because um, our family had to, like many Americans um, who, you know, had to work really hard to get to where they are. And um, when we, when my father finished off his military term, we started out in Carson, California, which is not too far from Long Beach. And my parents, as I mentioned to you before, were not educated, highly educated, like many other immigrants that came to the U.S. from Korea. Um, My mother worked at a sweatshop. Mm. Um, doing mm. piecemeal work. Um, my father was a cashier at a mini mart, a grocery store. Okay. And I experienced very early on um, the challenges within urban environments of um, America. The, the, the situation with, for example, seeing gang violence, um, mm. shootings, um, seeing poverty um, in my neighborhood. And as a child, it's interesting, it's, you know, you, you grow up, not, I mean, at that moment in time, you don't really think about it. You think it's just all very interesting. But in retrospect, it really has played an important role in, in how I think about the world and in, in, in the way that helps me to do the work that I do today. So fast forward a few years thereafter, when um, after my parents, after my father um, got out of the military, we spent a few years in Carson, um, just getting settled down in the U.S., um, we were invited by my mother's sisters. Both of them had decided to move to Washington State. And it was around, it was in the early 80s when there was this huge trend of many Californians just, just sick of the traffic, the okay, pollution, okay. the earthquakes and all that, um, wanting to go somewhere that was greener, um, had job opportunities, lots of space, Homes were affordable. Okay. Which, Great. Yeah. You know, yeah. Fast now, now that's yeah, that's not, not exactly it's where not you're the going case. To go. So right. we um okay. we ended up in Washington State, and and I spent the bulk of my time as a young person from elementary school all the way through high school, um, living in a primarily rural suburban area. It was a it was an annex part of Puyallup, Washington, uh, an area called South Hill. And at that time in South Hill, we had probably a handful of Asians, and the Asians who were there were primarily Korean or Chinese. And the rest of them, rest of the folks that were living in that area were white. And the the white community there were uh, from low to middle um, socioeconomically. So that also kind of gives you a hint in terms of the environment or the attitudes there, a little bit more conservative um, a little bit more rural um, in sensibility and politics. And growing up there, you know, like many Asians, I really focused on academics to get me through. And too often than not, in, in what I've realized in my life that's been a recurring theme is that there are things that, that happened in the past that I, didn't, I wasn't fully aware of that looking back um, through the lens of um, memory, that I recognize that they had an important impact in, 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 in how I developed as okay. a person. And, um, Expound, please. Yes, yes. Yeah. So just the understanding of identity, um, being an Asian American, my identity in, throughout grade school and high school wasn't necessarily Asian American. 
Okay. I was just a you kid. You were just, yeah, okay. I was good. just a kid. But it was once, you know, going into college, and initially I started off going to a liberal arts college in Maine um, on a scholarship. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty New England sensibility, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant environment, a lot of folks wearing boat shoes and wearing clothes from L.L. Bean. It was totally <laughs> foreign to me coming from the West Coast, but also coming from a, a poor, um, lower um, socioeconomic background. Uh, my parents worked um, you know, at one point selling things out of the back of a van. You know, okay. That's the experience that I came from. So that was really enlightening, and I immediately felt out of place. Okay. And I didn't really know what to call it and name it. And part of it was, um, you know, the fact that I came from a, my came from a very tough background. But the other part of it was also this, this area around my own sexual identity was also intersecting in this um, process of discovery, trying to figure myself out. And at the end of the day, I spent only a year at Bowdoin College and made the decision to um, apply and go back to the to Washington State and okay. go to school at the, at the University of Washington. So you never found your people. I never found a place <laughs> yeah. or a sense of being in okay. in you know New Brunswick, Maine. And while academically, I think that one year at Bowdoin College was by far the b- best experience I've ever had. Um, in thinking through my life and where I where I am now, I think it was the right decision. Um, in terms of moving back to Seattle. And in Seattle is where I've discovered myself. And then my eyes opened up, not only in terms of just understanding what it means to be an Asian American, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, but also as a a gay man. And um, one of the most amazing things that happened was um, while I was going to school there in Seattle, I met some amazing people working at a an art house movie theater. <laughs> so it's a it's a place that pulls together all the misfits, the people okay. with the pink hair, um, people that are thinking they're bi, but the reality is they're coming going through the process of coming out to be gay or um, other you know LGBT um, yeah. identity, and uh, they just made me feel very comfortable. Mm-hmm. They made me really appreciate the the person that I am and to be proud of who I am. So. That group of friends still, I stay very close in touch with. They've been very supportive over the years. It was also during that time in terms of my own ethnic identity and as an Asian American and specific as a Korean American, um, you know, I've had opportunities to attend different classes on Asian ethnic studies and understanding where we fit into in terms of this landscape of Asian America. I also had some opportunities to spend some time in the international district in Chinatown in Seattle, oh, okay. working with community-based organizations. I worked first with a community health center that worked with Asian immigrants and refugees. And then the other um, organization that I worked very closely with, um, an HIV AIDS project that works with Asian Pacific Islander men. And that time there was very formative in that, you know, there are disparities that I was, I became aware of not only in the Asian American community, but also in the general communities of color um, that I was not fully aware of uh, the the struggles and the challenges of Black Americans, um, you know the microaggressions that Black Americans face. Mm. 
the understanding of how stereotypes can be dangerous. Sometimes, you know, there are positive stereotypes, but even those tend to be very kind of confining and put, putting people into boxes, which is not necessarily the way we want to approach, you know, we want to be in our society. We want everyone to have this um, kind of this option to be whoever they want rather than to be pigeonholed um, by society based on um, prejudices and stereotypes. Okay, I'm going to stop you because somewhere along the way you did say, and I want to get to it, you said you were trying to place where Korean Americans fit within this landscape. Can you give us, tell me more, enlighten me what you think that is or has been? Korean Americans. Um, so I, I, I'll talk about it in in a, in a couple of different ways. One is that Korean Americans um, are often um, kind of aggregated with with a population of communities from Asia, Asian countries that include Japan and China, um, a group of the Southeast Asian population, and you know within the broad kind of context of the U.S. Um, you know, we were kind of the, this three group of folks, three ethnic groups have often been identified as the, the model minority. Ah, Those that... Um, oh, no pressure there. Yeah, no pressure there. Yeah. <laughs> Those for, you know, for whatever reason, and I'm sure there's many um, people, whether through media, whether through individual experiences, whether just through the sheer fact that um, this particular segment of the Asian American population are more visible in, say, um, well, you know, higher profession, higher valued professions like doctor or lawyers and so forth. But um, that model minority myth has ha- has a very imp- has a dangerous impact in terms of how the general society perceives us, and it makes it very difficult in the day the day work that I do at Asian Services in Action, where we're trying to advocate in advance on policies to help the community, the broader community, including the policymakers and stakeholders, understand that there's a, a tr- array, array of ethnic communities represented in the Asian American umbrella, and that Koreans are just one group, but there are also other groups such as the Southeast Asian population. We're talking about Hmong, Cambodian, Lao. Then we also talk about South Asian, which includes Asian, Indian, Pakistanis. Um, so, mm. you know, this is something that I think that what we've found in my work that I do is that it's an ongoing struggle and challenge to educate. For example, many people are, think that Asian Americans and including Koreans are uh, brilliant, smart, they're scientists, you know, they go on to Ivy League schools. Yes, there are definitely those that do. Um, but then there are also the statistics where you see the high school dropout rates among Hmong Americans and other Southeast Asians, as, as well as Native Hawaiians and Samoan, where their high school dropout rates are at uh, the level of African Americans. Okay. So that's important for us to understand, recognize as a community, um, and, and really to avoid this trapping of model minority label. Uh, because it masks the cha- the fundamental um, kind of problems and challenges that we have to address as a society. Right, the reality of what's there. So yeah, if if you are just assumed everything's going well, yeah. <laughs> basically there are other people that have more problems. And I mean, yeah. I, I think what we're saying also is when we stereotype yeah. e- in any way, we hurt the people 
that we're dealing with. Um, yep. And so, you know, being a Korean American, there are many aspects of being a Korean American I'm very proud of. You know, I'm, I'm proud of the hard work, that, you know, of my parents, uh, the fact that they gave up a lot of things to come to the U.S. for a better life for my brother and me, um, being Korean American in terms of, um, you know, what you see now in Korea and their advances in technology. I'm proud to, you know, own that own that as part of my background and my heritage. The The important thing also, though, I don't, in my identity, I don't necessarily identify as wholly Korean. You know, my identity is Korean American. And, you know, there are folks, when I have casual conversations here and there where, why, why aren't you just American? Why are you Korean American? And I think part of that comes from a level of resentment in, in folks that ask that question because they don't feel like they can, I, you know, own a unique label like that. Right. But from my perspective, it's who I am, right? It's, I'm, I'm American, but there's these parts of my life that sometimes are in conflict or in congruence with the fact that I'm also Korean. Right. Okay. And I mean, my, I, and I don't know this. I'm just wondering whether it's the, the closeness of the immigration, you know, first generation, second generation versus if people have a farther distance. Mm-hmm. I, um, I think you have less, you know, of that connection, but I'm sure there are many other factors. Yeah. Uh, in so. my case, I'm, I'm considered what's a 0.5 generation. <laughs> and that is a unique label for those that came to the U.S. as an infant. Okay. or a toddler, where they were young enough that they don't remember what it feels like to be in Korea, but they immigrated to U.S. And so much, most of where I feel like my identity is is less a Korean, but more of a American, Kore- American Korean, if you can say that, right? Um, so that's, uh, you know, that's something that I don't know if it's going to change over time. And you had mentioned, you had commented on this idea of the generations. And, you know, at this point now in the migration of Korean Americans to the U.S., uh, you know, now we're looking at about second and third generations that have been here. Um, you know, the, the crazy thing is, uh, you know, my brother was born here in the U.S. Right. He's five years younger than me. There was a time, and I think he's still more Korean than I am. And, you know, his experience was more that he was born in the U.S. and did not have the legitimate connection of being born in Korea to, to, you know, claim it. So throughout his early formative years, I mean, he was listening to Korean pop music. He enlisted in the U.S. Army and was stationed in Korea intentionally because he wanted to connect with his roots. Mm. Whereas in my case, as someone who's was born in Korea, for whatever reason, on a very subconscious level, perhaps, I owned it already and was now more inclined to look at how I, I as an individual can go towards acculturation and how to blend the two together. And that's where my fundamental work has been. Whereas my brother's work has really been about how to reconnect with his okay. roots. Okay. Um, now we're talking about transitions, and clearly you made a transition there, but you, it, your parents made that transition for you in terms of bringing you here. So I want to talk a little bit, get back to again the idea of expectations. So what did your was I'm is it your parents' expectations that shaped you the most, or your community? 
you were going to medical school at some point. Mm -hmm. Tell me a bit about this. You know, where did that come from? Yep. So I mentioned earlier how I spent a considerable amount of time in the International District in Chinatown during college and had this wonderful opportunity to connect with our Asian American community and understanding the social justice work as it relates to the Asian American community. And um, at one point later in my life after college, I wasn't quite sure, like many 20-year-olds and some folks here, the millennials, um, who take a little bit longer now, I mean, maybe 30 or 35, to determine what they want to do when they grow up in life. I had that same kind of experience. Well, I kind of did, too. (laughs) I'm sorry. I hit at least 29 or 30 before I had an inkling. That's right. That's right. So I went through that same process. And... uh, you know, my current, my my track right after college was really to work in the community and nonprofit, but there was a need for me to validate or verify if that was the case. And I didn't know that at the time, but this is in, in hindsight, looking okay. back. But at that point, I, like other Koreans and other Asian Americans who, I think there's something to be said about societal pressure and especially uh, pressure from your community uh, where you see a lot of um, Koreans and others, you know, becoming doctors, becoming lawyers, and you feel like in some level you're be- you've left, you know, you've let the community down. And at never at any point did my parents ever pressure me. And that is actually another important difference of between my parents and other Korean parents. Never pressured me. And largely part part of the reason is that they've known from very early on in just observing me and inter- interacting with me that I I am a very independent individual. And, no, no, <laughs> and not to, you, Michael. Uh, yeah, tend okay. to make those decisions and that just an innate trait in me, not necessarily unique to our community or to my Korean ethnic background. So, you know, I kind of paved my own path. And so I was pressured, I mean, in some level by society and my my peers that this is the direction to go. And so I explored, took a hiatus from nonprofit work and decided this is something I need to explore. And I spent about two and a half years doing all the prerequisites um, in college courses to, to complete my science requirements to apply. And it was the last semester one credit short um, in my <laughs> physics class that I had an awakening. And it was one of those situations. There was no particular reason. It was just getting up in the morning and saying, I've had enough of this. I don't want to do this. And and when you had that, yeah. okay, I know you did that feel good, scary, sad. I mean, so you can remember this. I mean, I'm, I'm watching the look on your face, but I'm curious, like, what did that feel like? It was a, a, a it was a many ways a, a sigh of relief because mm-hmm. I knew that it, had I continued on this path the the path towards becoming a doctor that that path would be long very long and I just you know completing those undergraduate requirements was just the start of it and that it would require a complete commitment um, of of a decade in order to get to where I want to be. And that was very sobering to me. And I'm not saying that the nonprofit route was a default. It was really on some level that I can't, I wasn't able to process at the time, but I think internally and on some sort of subconscious level, 
my, my inner self was telling me, follow your heart, do what you're passionate about, and go forward. Okay. And so, so relief and an inkling of, oh, I mean, yeah, no, I, I, was, I can almost feel, or maybe it's because yeah. I'm, I'm projecting on you, yeah. um, that there was just a heaviness to oh, the, yeah, no. yeah, that the other one was this heavy, gee, I can do this, I'm going to plot along and I'm going to do that. And then all of a sudden there's this, this like almost opening of, of light. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, don't oh, get just, me wrong. Yeah. It was like the, the two and a half years of going through, just kind of trudging through the, um, the classes all along thinking about this direction in my life. This is after the fact that I had completed an undergraduate and a graduate degree. And my graduate degree was in you know, public administration and nonprofit management. Okay. So this weighed on me considerably that I'm taking two and a half years on this path towards becoming a doctor. And it weighed on me each and every minute of that time if this was the right decision. And it weighed and it was stressful and it was challenging. And I think that when I woke up that morning to make that final decision, it did take this huge weight off my shoulders. It also gave me greater clarity and focus and uh, renewed just my commitment to what I wanted to do. And that was a, a very important life decision because you're not, you're not given those kinds of gifts often. And when you are, and when you have this discovery that um, allows you to become wiser, knowing that you know these decisions that come up in the future, you have a you have better tools to make them without challenge, um, and then you can be you can have greater clarity about those decisions. But the fact that there's no regret. There's no regret. You had to go through it in order to get to where you are, right? Okay. And that that was very important for me too. Um, and that, so that wasn't a mistake those two and a half a years either. I had so, to. Yep. Right. Right. Okay. And so part of you know in my leadership at leadership work at Asia Asian Services in Action and working with my peers and some of them are early managers developing in their profession. I think about my own experience and I try to share those with them when there are opportunities to do so that, you know, there are folks that, you know, maybe they decide to leave and they um, want to pursue something completely different. And my response to that has always been 100% supportive, knowing that they have to go through that life process, that journey, because that journey is really a part of who we are. And that makes our life so rich. I think it would have been completely boring, um, you know, if I didn't do that and um, just continue to chug along as a nonprofit person, right? I needed to take that two years, two years and a half to, to understand where I am, where I'm positioned in life as far as my values and what, what, what I want to do and what, how I want to contribute to society. And um, See, can, I always called it, this is great because... You know, it always seemed like other people had much more clarity, again, mm. where they were going. I never did. Yeah. And I said every job I took 
for probably 10, 20 years was a process of elimination. Mm. It was, I'm going to do this. Yep, yep, and they yep. go, no, that didn't feel good. <laughs> and, and again, trying to figure out what is it that's in me that yeah. needs to come out. So it sounds like that yeah. was your process of elimination. That, that, that was my you. process of elimination. It also kind of speaks to speaks to my personality and my my particular trait in that um, one of the things I've come to understand about me is I'm always someone who sees the glass as half full. Mm -hmm. And I noticed this um, not only in that particular decision because I could have um, bemoaned about it for, for forever, thinking, oh, I made a mistake, I made a mistake, and then go in a downward spiral and not be able to pick up. But the ability for me to look at that and go, oh, okay, yeah, it was two and a half years. It was um, um, two and a half years uh, that could have been done for something else. But the reality is I don't think I'm where I am if I didn't do it, right? And I kind of give that same advice to my colleagues as well that you know there might be times where they're struggling with a decision, whether it's personal or professional. And I remind them that you know whatever life has planned for you, and even at that moment, you're not sure. Just let, let go with it and see where it takes you because sometimes you'll be very surprised. Mm, mm. So where did life take you? Where? <laughs> so, okay, not going med school. It's yeah. this community service focus. And why? I mean, why is this that your heart opens up to? Where did that come from? I think the best way to describe this is that whenever I do something that helps others, I mean, whether it's publicly recognized or not, and in many instances, especially those those things that I do, um, random acts where no one knows, I get this tremendous high and satisfaction. <laughs> okay, so that's part of it. The other part too, though, the work that I do, which is um, with an organization that provides social services, but more importantly, they are a social justice organization. I see that the particular work, especially around systems and policy change, where we're trying to change systems in, in which our community operates, where our society um, lives, or the policies that um, either strengthen or support, you know, new Americans or, you know, prevent or, you know, to their detriment, um, their li livelihood and well-being. I mean, I see a level of injustice where if I can, through my own energy and knowledge and experience help to shape that for a better world, that's incredibly meaningful. And it is also this idea that the systems and policy work, whether it's um, advocating for access to affordable care, um, of health insurance for all communities, or making sure folks who have challenges with language access have available materials translated so that they could um, correctly read a you know vo voting guide or be able to read their utility bill so it doesn't get shut off you know that's empowering it's not enabling it's giving them the tools necessary for them to um, thrive and succeed and um, acculturate and in this process where it takes a lifetime for many of us to acculturate into a new society, um, that kind of opportunity where I can help to shape and, and advise and impact policy and systems, it's very meaningful because it's an uphill strategy. It, it means that by focusing my time and energy on this level, I'm able to help all these folks 
at the on a day-to-day basis, do their work, be able to live, be able to thrive. And that's extremely meaningful for me. I also, you know, these life decisions I've made, I've mentioned to you, especially this the career one, um, is also couched in this the fact that I have lived in Ohio for now a good amount of 16 years. And this is after living in Washington State and in Seattle prior to. Many folks would say, you're so crazy. Why are you coming to the Midwest after living in the Pacific Northwest where everyone is pining to get go out there, right? And I count my blessings for the fact that Ohio, Cleveland, Akron, the community has treated me so well. And I am eternally grateful um, because the work that I've been able to do here with community is immeasurable. And it's something that I don't think I could necessarily have done in any other part of the world world or the country. Um, So if I had stayed in Seattle, I'm not sure if I would have had the opportunity to uh, be able to sh- show my talent, my skills in a way that would impact the community. And, and for that reason, even the decision to be in Ohio, because the first few years were awful. I, <laughs> yeah, I yeah. hated okay. it. I was going to ask you about that. So it's it. not to say that once you made no, this decision, no, no. life just nope, flowed no. wonderfully. No, no, okay, no. I, I hated and I hated Ohio for the first few years. And part of it is, you know, a sense of isolation. There were there were no family members here. Uh, then my ex uh, partner, who was here with his family, they they did everything they could to make me feel comfortable. But I was just just very stubborn and resistant about getting comfortable here. <laughs> and I refuse. I refuse at all efforts to um, to try to assuage me to you know, make me happy, you know, do things and things. So you wanted to be the martyr. I wanted to be the (laughs) martyr. I was resistant. And, uh, you know, that's about the time, as I mentioned to you, I had explored. And I I don't think there's, it's not coincidence, but there was a reason behind also the med school, you know, and looking at becoming a doctor. It was part of that um, kind of what I thought would be the solution to help me get through Ohio. And, um, you know, connecting with Asia was very helpful. And that was, I think, the key. Uh, At that time, the organization was very tiny. We had a staff of about a dozen. Uh, Budget was, you know, probably in the half a million. Could we just, so for comparison, where is Asia now? So Asia now, we are close to $6 million operating budget with a staff close to 100. We have a federally qualified health center um, in two locations, in Akron and Cleveland. We also run a health center out of a school in a predominantly immigrant refugee neighborhood in Akron. We also run an organic farm focused on workforce development with new Americans. We have housing counseling to help folks who are looking to purchase their first home by providing counseling on, on financing, what it means to build credit, um, providing classes to teach them about what it means to be a responsible homeowner. We have other programs such as congregate meal and socialization program for our older adults who are often isolated at home. 
We have programs for children to help them with acculturation through mentorship and also academic support. So that's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> there is there Thank, is so much there and I'm really proud of it. And I, you know, honestly, I can't take credit for it. It is a team of folks. Um, it's a community. It's our board who just has been very supportive of our efforts to build uh, services and programs and initiatives that really help the community. So. so let's go back to the fact though that you said you don't think, you know, people have said, why Ohio? That you, because I think someone thinking about a transition, you know, you might go to the more obvious. I'm going to go where, you know, where I feel comfortable, where I have a support system. But instead, you had a personal support system, but you went somewhere where none of that existed. But because of that, you could you could grow, the organization could grow, and you could become who you were meant to be. Am I putting words in your mouth? No, and I think you know this is so interesting that you um, you you were able to characterize it that way. And I I agree. I think it is the growth of Asia and embodies my growth and uh, vice versa, right? Ooh. I think it's one and the same. I think there is a, a level of, there is a, a synergy of where Asia is. I mean, there's there's a connection. There's a connection with where Asia is and where I am as a person. And uh, if the growth is of any indication of where I am internally that you can't see, um, you can now imagine how much I've, I've really um, benefited from living here in Ohio and going through, again, going through that miserable state. If we look back on, a, on our lives, especially in instances like that one, um, I could be really just bitter about it and say, oh my gosh, why in the world did that happen? Why did I stay here? But I can't because look where I am, you know? I'm very grateful for everything, even all the challenging things that have happened in my life because it's gotten me to where I am as a person. So going back to that original image of the, the glass of, as has, half full, um, I really truly believe that's how I live my life. And having that attitude of optimism is extremely powerful. It is helpful to every one of us in our ability to navigate this very complex world. It's beautiful. And it offers so many wonderful things and also offers a lot of challenges. And to be able to think in a resilient way, to reflect um, in a way that helps you to move forward. And I'm not say, suggesting that we dismiss the things that are real, that are painful, that are not right. We acknowledge it, we, we accept it, but we also find a means of moving forward. And um, I feel that way about my life. So how have you done? Because I, I know you talked about being half full, optimistic. But I remember when we talked before, it was something that in some ways you just don't see the negatives. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that could be helpful to someone if they can change how they see. Yeah. Um, so I'll give you a good example um, that best des you know describe how I approach things. So... You know, in many organizations, very complex organization, one of the key challenges that we face is communication. And I'm often involved in situations where colleagues of mine are at each other. They <laughs> can't communicate. 
They're frustrated with each other. And <laughs> no, no, that <laughs> never happens, Michael. Okay. And, you know, and then there's also instances where I'm, you know, confronted or encounter a person where, you know, there might be a comment or a discussion where it just doesn't go the right way. And more often than not, and I think this is very true, I'm not trying to dismiss folks, but it could be a whole host of other things going on that is creating that kind of tense situation or moment or creating that kind of bad attitude response or comment that's snarky or passive aggressive, right? Okay. So I try to get into deeper into to why that happens. And um, at the end of the day, I, I'm able to come to terms that it's about people, we're human beings and we'll have bad days. Doesn't mean that we're inherently bad. Many of us aren't, I believe, inherently bad. I think there are many, a whole constellation of challenges or life issues or things that um, put us where we are. And I don't wanna get religious, but this is where I think um, uh, this idea of just uh, seeing people as good people fundamentally Mm. is really been very helpful in my life. And so I, I take that on to, you know, take that ahead, take that forward and in, in thinking about my own life and, and that even with life circumstances, I think there's meaning and there's purpose for why things happen. And we, our job is to be able to process it um, in a way that we can learn something and then we, they're able to move on. Times where I think that's not possible is where if there isn't anything to be learned from that, then I think it's certainly not a good situation. But I think more often than not, we're given challenges and circumstances where if we take some time to do some reflection, um, to look at all different perspectives, um, we have a better understanding and better level of empathy um, that we develop not only for ourselves, but also for the people around us. I'm going in a slightly different direction because it's something we talked about before today that you also you grew up kind of more isolated you talked about you know more rural you spent a lot of time on your own i can't remember if you said there was sickness but from that you also said you also can just ignore <laughs> other people <laughs> well, too yeah, i mean it, yeah, which no. is kind of funny because yeah. you're all about community yeah, so there's, yeah, so there's, there's a, a, there's a part that? of i mean and i think we're digging into kind of our you know, what makes us who we are. And one of the things that I shared with you um, not too long ago prior to this podcast was, you know, I grew up largely um, on my own. Um, And what I mean by that is my parents were like other immigrant parents that had a business and they were running a grocery store. Um, They worked 14 to 16 hours a day. Mm -hmm. And I spent much of my time alone. But the other part is um, being alone. Um, you do develop a um, coping mechanism for how to deal and how to solve problems on your own. And, uh, you know, I think those early experiences being kind of forced in a, in a situation where um, you're left to your own de- devices, um, I had to fend for myself. Uh, and I had to um, deal with challenges on my own. And that in some ways, I think, has helped me as an adult uh, just be able to 
be more resilient um, when I'm confronted with challenges, understanding that you know there are things around me that's out of my control, but there are definitely things within my control that I can handle and I could um, address that will they'll keep me happy, keep me focused, and keep me in the right direction. So uh, you know I don't know if that is also um, kind of indicative of many immigrant families who have parents who own grocery stores or other businesses, but I'm sure they've also developed some level of, of skills and coping mechanism to be independent, uh, to be resilient, to survive, to make decisions on their own, to develop strategies that will help them to stay um, you know, on the right track, going in the right direction. So if you make a decision and you've given it the time and you're thinking about the people and people around you don't agree with you, Mm-hmm. You're okay with that. I'm that okay a- with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's not like you're that affected. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Well, so, not that you don't take them into account. Correct. correct. But it's- so you know the thing. Uh, let me let me just clarify. It doesn't mean that I'm not affected. I just I'm less inclined to just let it get to me immediately. I will take some time to process it and uh, try to figure out where they're coming from. But um, I don't develop this kind of close out. I don't want to hear um, strategy. I'm more inclined to be receptive um, to process. But what the difference is, is that when the time comes to make a decision, um, I can make that knowing that it, it may not be something that everyone will agree to. And that's an important part of being a leader is that you want to be respectful and mindful and thoughtful about all the different factors that go into making a decision. Um, you want to be sincere about that, even the stuff that you don't want to hear. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know you will have to make a decision. You will have to have justification for those decisions. And you also know that there's going to be those who don't agree. And you know, part of what I try to do so that people understand, especially my colleagues, where I make a decision that, you know, I want to let you know, that I, I appreciate what you shared. Um, and I understand this is not exactly the, the, the direction that you want us to go. But I think um, weighing all the different factors, I think this is the best direction for us at this time. Okay. And I think people respect that. I mean, if you were dismissive and not give them an explanation or take the time to say, give them an explanation, yeah, you're creating additional tension in mis- in, 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 in fostering miscommunication. And this is something that I um, took from my experience working with a woman named Diane Narasaki, who is the executive director at Asian Counseling and Referral Service in Seattle, which, by the way, is actually the organization that I'll be moving to. And uh, I spent some time with Diane um, many years ago, and I just appreciated her leadership approach. She was firm, strong, but respectful. And the decisions were made uh, with tremendous amount of thought, looking at all different angles. And, you know, she was able to make very difficult decisions and still have the respect from folks because she gave them an explanation. She valued their input and she told them why she disagrees or agrees. And that level of compassionate leadership where you take the time when folks are doing things, um, hard, doing hard work and validating them, taking the time to say thank you, or taking the time to explain, knowing that if 
you don't explain, it'll create more conflict or more misunderstanding. Be you know, all that energy to make sure people are on the same page, I think that's very valuable. And there are many leaders out there that it's more efficient to just say yes or no without an explanation. Mm -hmm. And many of them just don't feel like they have the time and energy to. But I think the key part of being a leader is the time you spend there to do mm. the work. That's where you become most impactful. Well, now then I'm going to ask you to be a leader for our listeners. Um, Cause I, I, I like to try and get through um, like advice. Um, if someone is listening to you and relates to that, and I'm going to throw out three different things that you told me earlier, and you can talk about all three or some of sure. them um, about being grateful um, about how age works in your favor if you do this stuff when you're young mm -hmm. um, and being comfortable in your own skin. Mm -hmm. So those seem to be kind of critical. So yeah. pick one or more, yeah. please. You know, gratitude is something that I think many of us, uh, you know, because we get so caught up with our lives, especially at work or in our personal life, they just we don't take enough time to think about and reflect on um, in this, especially in this day and age where we are on our phones all the time. <laughs> and I am, I am also one that, you know, has that issue too, like many of us do despite our best efforts. But, you know, there, I, I, I think on, in general, we spend a tremendous amount of time on our phones. If we can spend that much time on our phones, I think we can take a minute or two um, in, reflecting on our lives, being grateful for where we are and all the things that have happened to us that have made us who we are, but also to be grateful for the people around us. And, you know, one of the most difficult things in, in terms of being grateful that's challenging for many folks is how to be grateful to people that you have the most challenges with. <laughs> and, you know, that is hard. That is very hard. And there's been many instances where, uh, you know, whether in passing, meeting with... Um, a community partner or at work where a colleague of yours just didn't do something right or you know just general tension with family where it's easy to just ignore it but the problem with that is actually it further exacerbates and aggravates the situation that it makes it that much more difficult when you come to time when you come to the moment that you actually want to just try to resolve it right so i've taken the tact of always just being proactive as soon as I'm aware, um, just to own up to if there was a mistake or a misunderstanding, um, just being able to apologize um, is an important thing as a leader, um, especially um, in many instances, there's old style of leadership where, you know, even when you made a mistake, you don't acknowledge that because you think it's a sign of weakness. Mm. But I think that um, someone who is grateful um, who appreciates people's work and can acknowledge that. And also at the same time, if it's a, it's a situation where their work um, helped you because you had made a mistake or you had overlooked something, it means you're human. And it means that you have a level of empathy um, and understanding uh, people. So, you know, and I think the work is actually where when you have challenging situations or challenging people, how to find moments of um, where you can be grateful for the work that they've done or how to be grateful for their contribution. Because even in those instances, there are many things, many more things that they have done right or that things that you should you know, show gratitude for. It might be that one particular thing that just takes you over the edge, but the, the, the key is to try to think of all the 
other things um, in that situation and and how to um, show gratitude. You know, age is so beautiful. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it more and more as I get older. Uh, I'm in my- <laughs> That's a good thing. I'm, Not everybody yeah, goes that direction, Michael. I'm in my early 40s and uh, I think that each decade has a unique way of um, revealing mm. a little mm. more about who you are. <laughs> and uh, in my 20s, I was just this curious being, um, just wanting to absorb things, uh, not really understanding what the, the value of it is at that time. And then my 30s was also an important milestone and um, learning how to just grow up, right? Yeah. And uh, because up till my 20s and 30s, and even until my early 30s, there was this pattern in my life where I would kind of start things and, and as things get tougher, I would kind of bail, whether mm -hmm. it's professionally or whether it's personally. And, uh, you know, 30s is around the time coincided with, uh, well, late 20s to 30s and on, coincided with the time that I was in Ohio, right? And uh, struggling through that, powering through the first three years of misery and coming out ahead on the other side. Okay. And uh, latter half of 30s and early 40s is where I've really developed this strong, uh, great appreciation for all the good things in my life and even the challenging things that have happened, this power of reflection, the power to go back to go back down memory lane and look and taking stock, looking at all the different things, all the different decisions that you've made, all the people that have come across your you know, life's path and how they somehow fit into who you are as a person, making you um, making you a richer person, not financially, but making you a richer person and, and having this very forward and promising and optimistic um, kind of view of life moving forward. In, in which case, like even the idea of uh, you know, our eventual and our in our lives does not make it too frightening for me. Um, I think that there's so much that's happened all the traveling that I've done, places that I've experienced, mm. wonderful people that I've encountered. And even with those challenging folks that I've encountered where I've learned something, uh, that's that all makes me very content and happy with where I am and who I am right now. Okay. Which it was the number three thing, being comfortable in your own skin. One of the things you said to me was, the world reveals itself so that if you don't put up all these barriers or try to be what everybody else wants to be, that to me, I took that to mean there's just an openness, again, to much more around you because you're, you're, you're not so focused on being something you're not. Yeah. And I think you don't, <laughs> you don't realize that in your 20s and, and even in your early 30s, I think you realize that only later in life and how things kind of reveal itself that now it makes sense that I went through three years of, you know, two and a half years or so of, of challenges. Um, and, you know, with, with thinking about medical school and also thinking about the transition of living in Ohio, it all just kind of makes sense now. It's just how, I think the best way to describe it is just, it's like this complex puzzle and the pieces are starting to kind of fit in place and you're, you're having those aha moments, right? And that's deeply gratifying and one that I find that to be the case each and every day um, in my 40s, 
is that um, through reflection, uh, through thinking about the past, uh, those pieces start to kind of fit in pl- and come in place. So well, we're going to have to do this again in your fifties and sixties. Yeah, there you go. Because <laughs> I don't know what to yeah, tell you. Exciting, what happens yeah. in those oh, decades? Oh, uh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all the pieces that's, fall apart. Oh, you yeah, you just empty the there box. You go. And I think that's what it is. <laughs> I, you know, so I am also um, okay and understanding that. You know, again, we won't know until down the road, but this might be the pinnacle or the apex of a, my life and the rest of it's going to flatten out or rest of it's going to go down or whatever. Um, and I hope even at that point in time that I will have this ability uh, to to go through with in life with a level of, you know, I, I certainly have to be um, kind of real about it. But also understand that, you know, there are many things that I can hold on to that has helped me through life in previous years that, um, that hopefully they will be there as well moving forward. Boy, this sounds like a good place to wrap up. Anything else you wanted to add? I, I really appreciate this opportunity, Luann. And, you know, part of what I enjoy about, enjoyed about this is this, this is an opportunity for us to have a conversation. Um, I know that we haven't really had much time together mm. um, on a day-to-day basis for a whole host of reasons, but I also see this as something that you and I can go back to at a later time in life and um, maybe sit down with a, a glass of Chardonnay or, or bubblies and, yes. and, 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 yes. and reflect. We so. have a date. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so thank you thank for you. sharing this part of your journey with us. So that wraps up today's visit with Michael Bion. Uh, the episode was called Great Expectations. Whose are they anyway? And I think what I take from it is this idea of a couple of things. It's okay to go against the grain um, and follow your heart. Mm-hmm. Really be open to that. And to then allow the journey to shape you yes. because that's that's what you need to become yep. you. Yep. So, okay. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. You've been listening to Passing Through Life, a show that explores how people get through major life changes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a wonderful review in Apple Podcasts. That will help new listeners know more what to expect. And you can email me at passingthroughlifepodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to comment about this show or suggest people and topics for future episodes. I'm Luann Bull Becker. Thanks again for joining us.